ready to go. So Luke chapter 20, we're going to try to finish it out. And as I said before, uh, Luke chapter 20 just seems to be one of the, it, it's, it's one of those, it's a chapter where there's just a lot of uh, conflict, right? These men are coming to Jesus and they're challenging him about his authority and they just, they just are re- un- unrelenting in their, in their attacks upon him. And we're seeing the same thing here again uh, with uh, these uh, Sadducees. And these Sadducees are coming to Jesus uh, thinking they have a clever theological conundrum, uh, thinking that they could discredit Jesus, trip Jesus up, look him, look, make him look bad in the eyes of the people. And so, uh, once again, we see Jesus um, uh, being confronted by his enemies. So let's look at uh, verses uh, 27 through 32. I'll read him. Okay, so at least we'll have it in our minds. And then uh, I'll go ahead and make some comments about what it is that we read. He says here in verse 27, Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to wife, and he died childless, and the third third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. And now here is that riddle. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. So there's their clever little riddle. Okay? Now, first of all, who are these Sadducees? Uh, this is the one and only time that you will read about these uh, Sadducees right here in the Gospel of Luke. And But we have already seen these men once before. In fact, in the very beginning of the chapter, if you look at Luke chapter 21 and it mentions the chief priests and the scribes, that's who the Sadducees were. The Sadducees uh, were the what you would consider or call the priestly aristocracy. All right, uh, these were the high mucky mucks as far as the uh, Sanhedrin, that uh, that that uh, ruling body of the Jews, are concerned. In fact, in Acts five seventeen, you don't need to to turn there. In Acts five five seventeen, uh, Luke, who's writing Acts, refers to these men as a sect, S E C T. Or a faction is another word you could use. They were a faction within the ruling religious party of the Sanhedrin. And of course the Sanhedrin was made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and and some of the elders. So the Sadducees, uh, they were a powerful minority in the Sanhedrin. Right? Kind of like what goes on in Washington, D.C. today. A very powerful minority. Uh, and they were made up of the ultra-conservative, the arist- you know, aristocratic, the wealthy. Uh, they were the, uh, the high priests like Ananias and Caiaphas. Ananias and Caiaphas uh, were Sadducees. Now, as we see right here in Luke, theologically... Uh, the Sadducees, they rejected the oral traditions of the Pharisees, right? Uh, they also rejected the historical books. They rejected the Psalms. 
They rejected the prophets. They rejected Proverbs. and They rejected the only books that they held to, that they claimed uh, any allegiance to, were the first five books of Moses. So that would be Genesis to Deuteronomy. So that, that was the only books that they would hold to. And we kind of have something similar to that among some Christian sects or factions. Because there's some Christian... Um, Factions that believe that only the books of Paul, only the epistles of Paul are we to study and read. All the other Bible is to be more or less rejected or ignored. So we have that even in in today's Christianity, only accepting a certain portion of scripture. But what does Paul tell us in Timothy? He says that what? All scripture is profitable. That's not just the books of Paul, it's all scripture is profitable. Okay, so, uh, so we do have that within Christianity. Um, and as far as these Sadducees are concerned, well, Acts 23.8 pretty well summarizes what it is that they believe. Again, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to read Acts 23, verse 8. He says, for the Sadducees say, okay, that's what? Their opinion, for the Sadducees say that there is no no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. So they pretty much deny the the spiritual aspect of of man or angels or anything like that. Uh, So that's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of like uh, our today's um, theological materialists. Right? Theological materialists whose, whose hopes and dreams rest solely in the here and now, in, in, the, in the today, in their progeny, in their children. It, 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 they're not so much concerned for the world to come as the world today. They're materialists. They were materialists. Uh, there are a lot of uh, Christians in a very practical way uh, live this kind of lifestyle they live a a materialist lifestyle they they deem the affairs of this life uh, more important than their spiritual life they deem the 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 things that go on today uh, more important than eternity and that's how they live their lives you, you can see it in their priorities. You can see it in the way uh, they live their lives. It's, it's more important what's going on with me today, and I'll not worry about eternity or, you know, the consequences of my actions for eternity. And there's a lot of people who live to live that, that do live that way. Also, the Sadducees, uh, they were more concerned about the political life of the Jewish people rather than the religious life. So they were all about uh, the politics. They were all about the secular interests of the people. And so that's why um, they were so close in uh, cooperating with the Roman government. And the only reason why they were cooperating with the Roman government was to what? To preserve the status quo, to keep themselves in power. That's what they were all about. 
That's what they were all about. So that's, that's pretty much the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were the more popular party among the people because they were interested in the spiritual side of life. Uh, but not so these Sadducees. They were all about, today, they were all about politics. They were all about materialism, that kind of stuff. So these men brought to Jesus a riddle. And I'm sure they used this riddle on the Pharisees successfully and because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and Jesus also believed in the resurrection. He taught about the resurrection, didn't he? So Jesus believed in the resurrection. So these Sadducees, they came to Jesus and they thought they had a pretty good argument to trip Jesus up. Okay, so that's what this is all about. Now, what the Sadducees are referring to and you don't have to turn there, but for future reference, if you want to check it out for yourself, what they were referring to is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 3 through 6. Uh, now, some uh, folks have referred to this, and I know I'm going to butcher the word, but this is the word they use. Leverite. I think is how that's, or leverate, or something like that. That's how they, that's how, that's that's what they call it. And um, what, this word here is a Latin word, and it simply means brother-in-law. So this is the the law of the brother-in-law in marriage, pretty much. That's what it is. And, and it's simple, it's easy to understand. When a man marries a woman and he ends up dying, leaving no child, then the brother of that man marries the deceased man's wife to have children in the name of the deceased brother. Okay? Sounds kind of wild, doesn't it? It does. It sounds kind of wild. But that's that was... Um, that was an important aspect of Jewish life. That's an important aspect of Jewish life. And so we kind of see this law played out with the story of Ruth and Boaz. So we see this law played out in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Ruth, uh, Boaz being the near kinsman of Naomi who is Ruth's mother-in-law, and I'm not going to get into all that, but we see that. We see, a gen- we see a Gentile bride married to a Jewish husband, and there's just a lot there. Don't have the time to go in. But you see this law carried out in, um, in the book of Ruth. Now, the reason why this was done, according to Deuteronomy 25, is so that the name of the brother would not be blotted out. That's, that's the reason why. So that the name of the brother, a name would not be blotted out of Israel, I think is how it's put. You see, in the Jewish heart and mind, and it's kind of difficult for us to think this way, but in the Jewish heart and mind, it was a great tragedy when a family became extinct. Okay, or when a name was blotted out. That was a great, great tragedy uh, when that would occur. 
thinking this way. That's why the Holocaust of World War II was such a tragedy in the Jewish psyche. Because all of those names and all of those families and all of those future generations of God's chosen people were exterminated, were made extinct. That's why the Holocaust in the Jewish psyche was such a great tragedy. Because of this. Okay? It was the matter of inheritance. It was the matter of being the chosen people of God. It was the matter of heritage. That is critical. That is uppermost in the mind and the heart of the Jewish people of God's chosen people. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 8 says, this is the Lord, he says, And I will bring you in onto the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I give it to you for a heritage. In the Jewish mind, this is uppermost. This is their identity. Okay? So very important. In Genesis 48, 5 through 6, Jacob was soon to die, and Joseph had two sons born of an Egyptian woman, Manasseh and Ephraim. And what did Jacob do before he died? He called those two boys in before him, and he laid his hands upon these two boys who were born of an Egyptian woman outside of the land. And what did he do? He blessed these two boys to guarantee that these two boys would share in the heritage. Okay? That's what he did. That's how, that's how crucial this stuff is to the Jewish mind. In the Psalm of Moses, found in Exodus 15, uh, he highlights this promise of inheritance and heritage to all the seed of Abraham. That's how important it is. Uh, the campaign of Joshua and the Israelites to drive out the heathen nations was to what? To reclaim their God-given heritage. Their inheritance. The promised land. Joshua 1.6 Be strong and of a good courage. This is God speaking to Joshua. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. See, it's hard for us to comprehend how vitally important this is. To the Jewish mind. Why do you think they're so tenacious today in fighting against all their enemies? And this matter of one's name uh, being blotted out and the, and the loss of this heritage, the loss of this inheritance, that was considered a great curse upon the Jewish mind. I'm going somewhere with this, guys. I'm trying to impress upon you the importance of what these Sadducees are making light of. In Psalms 109 verse 12, this is a curse upon the enemy. 
He says, let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. That's why you read in Exodus that terrible, terrible phrase, that soul is to be cut off. We're not simply talking about physical death. We're talking about being cut off from the heritage of the chosen people of God. Serious, serious issue with the Jewish people. Some application. You know, in our nation, we have willfully destroyed millions of children by abortion. We've legalized that. And what have we essentially done? We have blotted out countless names, countless generations. In effect, what we have done is we have killed our heritage, haven't we? The purpose of this particular law in the mind of the Jews is to prolong the family name, to preserve the inheritance within the Jewish people, and to perpetuate the heritage of the Lord. So what I'm trying to impress upon you is the criticalness of this, what these Sadducees are making light of. Again, spiritually, for the born-again believer, we perpetuate the name of Jesus Christ. How? By preaching the gospel to the lost. Right? Our inheritance, is it here on earth? Where is our inheritance? It's in heaven. It's in heaven, not here on earth. Not here on earth. And the heritage that we as Christians, we as the church have, is in the raising of children. Spiritual children, those, you know, that we lead to the, but also physical children. When we raise physical children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, according to Ephesians 6, 4, we are prolonging, preserving, and perpetuating the heritage that we have in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so important for mom and dad to be the example you need to be for your children in raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your kids watch you. And if you've got an attitude toward this heritage, if it's flippant, if it's not important to you, if it's not critical to you, then it's not going to be critical to your children. And what have you just done? You have failed in prolonging and preserving and perpetuating that heritage. Serious stuff, unfortunately, not taken serious by enough. Why do you think we're in the state we're in in this country?
getting back to the Sadducees. Those who don't believe in the word of God or the power of God, it's common for these kind of guys, and I call them ignorant wise guys, it's common for these kind of guys, and I know you've run into them, what they like to do is they like to load all these difficulties on the truth of God and generally their tactic they take is, is what they try to do is they try to take the issues of this life and try to apply them to the life to come because in this life it doesn't make any sense therefore in the next life it doesn't make any sense you see what I'm saying? So in their minds, they can't make the two fit. They can't make the two fit. So what these Sadducees have done is they've taken a precept of God meant for the prolonging and the preserving, the perpetuating of the heritage of, of God's chosen people. And what they did is they effectively twisted it to their own evil purposes to defend their own error in regards to what they misunderstood or ignorant of what God's word really said. Have you ever run into anybody like this? They refute the authority of God's word and they'll take something from God's word and instead of it becoming a, a blessing... Uh, They make it a cause of contention because of their ignorance of what God's word truly says. Paul warned of these folks. 2 Timothy 2.14, he says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit. That's exactly what these Sadducees are doing. But to the subverting of the hearers, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And that's what these types of people love to do. These men were materialists. All that existed for them was the here and now, and therefore they tried to take their materialistic viewpoint of life and they tried to apply it to the Bible and the next life. It's like mixing oil and water, it doesn't work. And so what they did was is they created a nonsensical hypothetical puzzle thinking that they could trip up the Lord and really all they did was is deprive themselves of the heritage that belonged to all of faith because of their unbelief. You know, sometimes because of our wrong notions about God and his word we ourselves can become blind to the obvious and we ourselves can cheat ourselves out of the blessings that God has for us. 
The very reasons that many of God's people uh, may use to justify their wrong-mindedness about things may be the very truth they need to obtain victory and inherit blessing. You see, the Sadducees were fundamentally flawed in their perspective about the life to come, and this error was then passed on into their misunderstanding about God himself. It happens all the time. As an example, the Mormons... I may not get finished. The Mormons do something very, very similar in their doctrine. And they try to tie the earthly with the heavenly. You can't, you can't do that. They try to tie the earthly with the heavenly. This is, this is what they teach. This is straight out of the, the Mormon doctrine, right out of their own writings. Uh, what they have is they have a ritual that seals your marriage here on earth so that you are perpetually married on into heaven. All right? So they have a a ritual that uh, will seal your marriage here on earth to make sure you're married in heaven so that you can have spirit babies, so you can still have spiritual babies. And what happens is you, with these spiritual children that you have with your wife, you populate a planet and you become the god over that planet, over your own children that you've had in this celestial marriage. I see your lip going up. (laughs) I know, it's wild. But that's what they believe. Um, The apostle, one of the former apostles of the LDS church, Bruce McConkie, he says, um, Those who attain exaltation inherit in due course the fullness of the glory of the Father, meaning that that they have all power in heaven and on earth. Uh, the, the doctrine of covenants teaches that then shall they be gods because they have no end. Then shall they be gods because they have all power. And this is the ultimate goal in Mormonism is to become God. Right? Kind of reminds me of what the serpent said to Eve in Genesis 3, 5. Right? Ye shall... Huh? Yeah. Ye, yeah. Ye shall be as... God, right? That's a lie right out of the pit of hell. Well, one of the requirements to reach this God status is to have a celestial wedding. All right? So today in the Mormon church, there is a ceremony called a celestial wedding that is performed in the Mormon temple or tabernacle there in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. And you go through this, and after you go through this ceremony, then you and your wife are forever married. So there's no such thing as until death do you part, right? So you're forever married. And so couples who are joined in this ceremony are, are, are considered sealed. Their children are automatically sealed. Any children they have, they're also automatically sealed. And this will continue in their state of exaltation and then they'll be gods over their own worlds again McConkie says 
Celestial marriage is the gate to exaltation, and exaltation consists in the, content, in the continuation of the family unit in eternity. Kind of explains why the family is so important in the Mormon church, doesn't it? Because they are very family-oriented. He says, exaltation is the kind of life which God lives. So you be like God. And you must have this celestial marriage in order to reach this state of godhood. So that's a requirement. It's a requirement. In fact, the man writes, the most important thing that any member of the LDS church ever does in this world is to, one, marry the right person in the right place, the tabernacle, by the right authority, the Mormon church, and two, to keep the covenant made in connection with this holy and perfect order of matrimony. So all Mormon men who desire godhood must be married. And if you have more than one wife, even the better. If you don't, Mary, then according to the Mormon leadership, in fact, this one fellow, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a, a, a president of the Mormon church, says, any young man who carelessly neglects this great commandment to marry or does not marry because of a selfish desire to avoid the responsibilities which married life will bring is taking a course which is displeasing in the sight of God. There can be no exaltation without it. If a man refuses, he is taking a course which may bar him forever from exaltation. So almost it sounds like that if a young man doesn't get married, then he doesn't get saved. Of course, that contradicts what Jesus says, just like with the Sadducees. Just like with the Sadducees. And so in Matthew's gospel, Jesus correctly identifies the problems, just like with the Mormons. He says, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And so in Luke's gospel, Luke 20, verse 34, Jesus answers them and says, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, notice, this and that and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage neither can they die anymore for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection first of all notice the distinction the children of this world and that alright he also says those who are counted worthy to obtain that world that resurrection World, And I'll talk about that accounted worthy in another lesson. But he's talking about two different spheres or realms of existence. The here and now and in the future. Two different distinct existences, if you will. One of the primary blessings of marriage is the having of children, isn't it? Having children. In fact, in Genesis 1.27, when God set the whole thing up, 
He said in, in Genesis 1, 27, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Then verse 28, And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. So that's a, that's a part of marriage, is to multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's for this life today, okay? That's for this life today. But all those who share in the resurrection life, they'll be immortal. They'll live forever. They'll live forever. And so the necessity if you will, of married life in propagating the race will no longer be applicable in the resurrection life. If people like the Quakers never married, never had children, what do you think would eventually happen to the human race? it would go extinct, wouldn't it? It would die out. That's, that's the reason for having children, is to perpetuate, prolong, preserve the race. In the resurrection, we are immortal. We are equal to the angels. We live forever. Therefore, there's no longer any reason for the propagating of the race. Why? Because we are new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. We will know that in reality one of these days. So what these men were trying to do is they were trying to impose what was true of this world onto what was not and what is not true in the next. That was their error. That was their error. You know, we are to be equal unto the angels. This speaks of the state or the condition of those who are blessed to experience this resurrection unto eternal life. Being equal means of the same quality in regards to life. What is the quality of an angel's life? It's immortal. It's immortal. Therefore, there's no need to propagate. There's no need to replenish the race. Why is that? Because in the resurrection, we are an immortal race. An immortal race. Never subject to death. Again. So those living in the resurrection, they'll be living in this exalted state of glory like the holy angels. 2 Peter 1.4 Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, right now and please don't misunderstand what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, right now we are partakers of the divine nature. Why is that? Because we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. Okay? So we are partakers of the divine nature. When we are resurrected or raptured and we receive our glorified body, (laughs) we're going to have what the Bible calls a full measure of that divine nature. 
in that where the body of flesh, the body of death, the body of sin dies, when we are resurrected, we receive a holy, immaculate, sinless body, and we shall receive a full share of that immortal nature of God. Does that make sense? You see where I'm going with that? Two different worlds. You can't take from this and apply it to that, and you can't take from that and apply it to this. That's what they were doing. 1 John 3 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Again, because of the two different, you know, worlds. Therefore the world knoweth him not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, what does it say? We shall be like him. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. Well, yeah, I can. But it'll be great. It'll be great. So the life that we will have then will be immortal get this, sinless that's what I'm really looking forward to perfect life perfect beings and again what we shall be in that life will be so far superior to this old worldly life that this old worldly life will appear nothing more than a bad nightmare soon gone away and something else our relationships with those that we love now we think we we think we've got a great uh, perfect relationship with those we love now when we get on that other side let me tell you something that relationship will be a thousand times better than anything that you can experience here on this earth. We will love with a perfect, sinless love. So I don't care how good of a relationship you've got with your wife today or your husband today, that relationship will be on a different level and far superior to anything that you can imagine now. It's hard for us to imagine that, though, isn't it? It's hard for us to relate that. So like the Mormons and the Sadducees, they were ignorant of the word of God and the power of God. And what they did is they completely misrepresented or misunderstood the life of the resurrection, thinking that it would be a drab continuation of this life. I'll tell you what, if heaven is like now... No, it's not going to be anything like it is. Oh, you got that right, Ron. You got that right. Ron would still be blind. We would still have our dramas. No. 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 Second thing to note here is the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Whereas being equal unto the angels addresses our state in that we will be immortal, glorified, resurrected, sinless beings. Being the children of God speaks to our status. 
in the resurrection. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The word power is not the Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, or, you know, it talks about a force or power, like from an electric generator. The word here is excusia, and it means authority. Do you realize being a son of God, being a child of God right now, you have the authority that God has invested into you because of your status, your standing? The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Our position in the the resurrection life will be so far elevated to anything comparable to this life. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 say that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted sons of God. Therefore, we've got that authority as a son of God. That's big stuff, guys. Big stuff. Another passage is found in Revelations where it says in Revelations 1.5 because of Jesus Christ we are, we are um, kings and priests unto God that's authority that's authority something else about this authority Revelations 26 20 verse 6 I'm sorry I don't mean to run that together he says blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such on such the second death hath no power you see our authority given to us because of Jesus Christ the second death has no a power has no authority over us do you realize that right now because you are a blood washed Satan God you outrank the second death that's authority that's that spiritual authority that God has given unto us He addresses their ignorance about the resurrection and he educates them about the power of God. He said in verse 37, Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Jesus is quoting Exodus 3.6. This is God himself speaking, not Moses. And when Jesus speaks to these Sadducees, he's speaking to them from a higher authority than Moses. He's speaking the very words of God. God himself said this. If these men were not alive unto God, God would not claim them. For God is the God of the living. These men were alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. Not in their bodies, but in their souls and their spirits. They were alive. One of these days, we're going to see these guys in their bodies. Won't that be wild? We'll be able to go up and talk to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Won't that be wild? See, the sad view of many who claim to be Christian, is that God's only good for us when we die. 
for many people, the only good that religion is, is it's good to marry us and it's good to bury us. It's good to marry us and good to bury us. And it's funny, well, it's not funny, it's kind of sad, that the only time most people become religious is when somebody's getting married or when somebody's getting buried. Really, it's the only time that most people are really, truly religious. It's a reflection on their attitude towards the things of God. Most people have nothing to do with God while they live but boy they really hope that God comes through for them when they die that's where, that's where a lot of people are in their, their attitude toward God continuing on verse 39 shifted into a higher gear then certain of the scribes answering said master thou hast well said and after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. These scribes were probably some of them who had gotten caught up in this debate with the Sadducees, and they didn't have a sufficient answer. But when they heard Jesus' answer, they said, All right, good answer. Good answer. Way to go, Jesus. You know, it's a shame that even though these men would agree with him in principle about the resurrection life, they would reject him as the resurrection life. A lot of folks do that. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It's no different today with so many people. They agree with Jesus in principle, but they reject him as Savior. Others claim him as Savior, but they deny his lordship in their lives. Why? Because they love this world too much. They're all about the here and now. They're like Demas who had forsaken Paul. They love this present world too much to allow the love of Jesus to have free course in their hearts and their lives. And just like the Sadducees, many of us labor under the error that the abundant life is to be found in the here and now. Let me clue you in on something. It isn't. It isn't. It's only found in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You realize that if you live for Christ in this life, you can experience some of that abundant life. And then when you get into the next life, because of living for Christ in this life, when you get into the next life, you are really going to experience the abundant life. We've got to stop listening to the lies of the enemy who seeks to steal from us that abundant life. Stop listening to the enemy to tell you, hey, the here and now is important. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow you're promised heaven. Don't fall into that. Don't fall into that. Yeah, we can have a good time while we're here. 
But all that you do, whether you eat and drink, what do we do it for? For the glory of God. So Jesus silenced the ignorant wise guys. And these scribes were agreeing with him. Said, good job, Jesus. But Jesus wasn't going to let these guys off the hook, was he? These scribes. He turns to these scribes in verse 41. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? You know, that if I were a scribe, every time Jesus asked me a question, I'd start getting nervous. Because <laughs> it never works out very well. And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? You see, these scribes prided themselves in being experts in the scriptures. This was their bread and butter. And yet, isn't it funny that sometimes it's the experts that seem to be so obtuse? so willfully ignorant about things you know Jesus had earlier challenged these men about their knowledge of the scriptures John chapter 5 in verse 36 he says I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the father hath sent me and the father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. See, Jesus is soon to go to the cross, and what Jesus is doing, as he's always done, he's providing these men yet another opportunity to search the scriptures. And believe in me. He does it even today. uh, Jesus quotes from Psalms 110, a messianic psalm. This messianic psalm speaks of the promised king. The seed of David. Remember just days prior to this what the people were shouting when he rode in on that foal of an ass? They were proclaiming Jesus to be the king, the, the son of David. Psalms 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Fourteen times this psalm is quoted in the Gospels or the Epistles. I think even in Revelations. The book of Hebrews, it's quoted quite a bit. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 5, it's quoted about Jesus being the perjurer of our sin. In Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 2, it talks about Jesus, the great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 10, it's quoted again as Jesus, the perfect sanctifying sacrifice. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3, it's quoted about Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith. The word finisher is also translated 
as perfection or perfect. In other words, what he's saying is, is that not only is he the, the source of our faith, but he is all that we need for our faith. In him is nothing lacking for us to trust him. He's everything. Omega, Alpha, and Omega. And he asks the question, how can David call him Lord and Son at the same time? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? If you're at all educated in what the Bible teaches about this, you know what, what he, how that works. He is the son of David through who? Mary, his mom, right? Because Mary is a direct descendant of Nathan, who was a son of David. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 31 talk about that. Or no, Luke chapter 3, verse 31 talks about that. So he is a seed, he is a seed of David, the son of David. Luke 1, 30, 31 and the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom shall have no end. See, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant that God had given to David uh, way back there. I think it's in 2 Samuel 7. When God had promised to David that he would have a seed to sit on his throne forever. That's Jesus Christ. So he is the son of David. But who else, who other son is he? He He's also the son of God. The son of the highest. This is the issue that these scribes could not figure out. Because they denied what? That he was the son of God. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they condemned Jesus on two charges. One, he broke the Sabbath. Two, he claimed to be the Son of God. John 5.18, Therefore the Jews sought to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. That's why they put him to death. That's why they put him to death. This is the very thing that Peter preached to, to them on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, said in Romans 1.2, or one three concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. As the seed of David, Christ receives the earthly throne of the kingdom of heaven. As a son of God, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven. 
He's a fulfillment of that. And this is what these men could not fathom, could not believe. So yes, David could call him Lord and at the same time call him son. Because he was a fulfillment of all those promises. And the very things they refused to believe was the reason why they were rejected. Is the reason why they were rejected. Remember the cornerstone? They rejected the cornerstone. They rejected the cornerstone. And this is why I believe in verse 45 that Jesus tells these people, he speaks to these people, he says, Then in the audience of all the people he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater Damnation. In essence, what Jesus is doing here is like the like the father in Proverbs. Proverbs nineteen twenty seven. He says, "Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causes to err from the words of knowledge." This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples in the audience. He's telling them these scribes do not have the words of eternal life. Don't listen to them. They're wrong. That's a pretty strong statement to make, isn't it? There are those who look godly and sound godly, but they don't possess the word of God because they don't know God. That's what he's saying. And he says that these men shall receive greater damnation. I mean, hell is bad. You mean to tell me it can get worse? Yes. Yes. I believe there is a grave eternal punishment for those who lead others astray in regards to the things of God. False teachers and preachers who lead men and women into perdition by their false doctrine, I believe will face a severer punishment than, dare I say, an Adolf Hitler. Because they're dealing with what? The eternal souls of people. Three times this phrase, greater damnation, is used in the Gospels. And each time it relates to these religious leaders of the Jewish people. Is it any wonder that Peter in Acts 4, 20, uh, 2 verse 40 says, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. The word untoward is the Greek word scolios, from which we get the medical term scoliosis, which means a twisting or a curvature of the spine these men were twisted they were theologically perverted in regards to the truth they were willfully wicked 
And so in these last days left to Jesus, he is warning his disciples, he is warning his people about these twisted men and their hypocrisy to avoid listening to what they teach. How many times have you heard me give that same warning? Because we're living in that day. Jude, cha- uh, Jude chapter 1. How many chapters in Jude? Yeah. Jude verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. So in closing, you know, the more I study the life of Christ, the more I see similarities between the closing days of his earthly ministry and the closing days of the church age. As with the Sadducees of Jesus' time, I think what we're going to see, or we are seeing, settling in the church today, is an attitude of arrogance and patronizing worldliness that would become more commonplace among Christianity. There's also going to be a spirit of quiet indifference to all spiritual things and devotion to to Christ. And I think we're also going to see the church um, not grow cold or grow hot, but grow tepid or lukewarm. Lukewarm. The world, for many, many who claim Christ, will be given precedence in their lives as they systematically reject the preeminence of Christ over their life. We're seeing it. We're seeing it. Don't be that person, is what Jesus is saying. Don't be that person. Don't follow the scribes of this world. Don't be that person. Amen? Uh, Ron, would you mind closing out in prayer?